You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I said to India, my daughter India, she's seven now, I said to her, you know, we've got the funeral tomorrow. Um, and she said, what, what's a funeral again? I said, uh, you know, it's a little church service we have to honour and grieve uh, the, somebody who's died. And so we're going to do that for par tomorrow. And she said, we can't have a funeral then. And I said, we are having a funeral. Like, it's all, it's all organised. We're having a funeral. But what, why, why is it that we can't have the funeral? And she said, because par's not dead. And I said, oh, yeah, no, par is dead. He, par, par died. And she said, yeah, par died, but now he's alive. And, and it hit me at that point that, India is a better theologian than I am because that's exactly what Jesus said in John 11. In John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, yet will he live. Even though he dies, yet will he live. And this is the great hope of Christianity. This is the great hope that just as Jesus died and was raised again, that those who believe in him, though they die, will be raised again. Resurrection is our hope. Recreation is our hope. This is the big picture of the Bible, right? This is the plot line of the Bible. It's creation, fall, redemption, Restoration. God makes everything good. I'll go this way. God makes everything good. Everything's broken by chapter 3 of the first book. In the fall, sin enters the world. Redemption comes after long being promised. Redemption comes in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And between that point and the end, our great hope is final restoration. I need to be really clear about this. The hope that we have for Renee's dad, Linton, that India expressed so well, based on what Jesus says, is a full and final recreation. That's what, that's what God is working towards. Our hope is not fluffy clouds and cream cheese, right? It's got nothing to do with harps, I'm hoping, right? It's, it's about recreation. It's about a new heavens and a new earth. It's about everything that this world is meant to be restored and unable to ever fall again. That's what we're working towards. And so I thought it was absolute nonsense when I heard one of my Anglican colleagues recently at a funeral say that the person who had died was now... Um, had been absorbed like a drop into the ocean of God's love. That this, their kind of eternal experience would be this sort of amorphous, blah, like a drop into the ocean of God. Like, this, like it's some kind of spirit. Now, that is a firm belief of some people. It's called Platonism. It's a very ancient belief. It's just not Christian. That, that, that somehow the, the, uh, the, the life that we are yearning for is this sort of spiritual 
disembodied existence. That is not Christian hope. Christian hope is full and final recreation, restoration, resurrection. All of this was shown to us by Jesus himself in his death, burial and resurrection. Now, that hope, that sure and certain hope that all Christians have always had is available to everyone here today. Jesus' message is a message of invitation to eternal life. John 3.16 God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. What God is presenting to you every day of your life and in microcosm this morning is an invitation to shun death and embrace life eternal. Now that hope, that sure and certain hope, that invitation that is available to all people can be had, can be owned, can be, can be um, embodied by everyone who believes three things that Zephaniah wants to tell, tell us about this morning. You need to believe, receive these three things. You need to believe in the wrath of God. You need to believe in repentance and you need to believe in final restoration. I've got those three things listed for you. I was going for an alliteration. I maintain that that is alliteration. It's just because English is dumb that it's not three R's, okay? So just work with me on this. Wrath, repentance, and restoration. And Zephaniah is going to take us on this journey from, from wrath through repentance and finally to Restoration. If you're a Christian here this morning, your temptation is to turn off because you already know this stuff. Don't. Don't do it. Zephaniah is speaking to the people of God of whom you are one. All right? If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you need to know this. This is more important than any other piece of information you will ever hear. Not because I'm saying it, but because God has said it. All right? So let's jump in. Starting with wrath, starting in the darkness, starting with the bad news, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. You can follow along in those shiny new Bibles or on the screen. God says through Zephaniah, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins. Along with the wicked, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. What Zephaniah has done there in, in, in constructing that little paragraph is he is saying, remember creation? God is going to undo creation. He's basically just working back through creation. He is going to take all that he has created and erase. Why? Why is God going to do that? Verse 17. 
I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. God's wrath is coming in the form of utter destruction, deconstruction, right? Deconstruction of all that he has made. Why? Because people have sinned against him. Specifically, in Zephaniah's context, verse 4 to 6, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place. The names of the pagan priests along with the priests. Those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky. Those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. And those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Here's what the people of Judah are doing. Remember, southern kingdom of Judah, the people, God's so-called people, they're hedging their bets, right? They're, they're, they're playing this gambler's game where they're going to have a bet each way on every horse. Yes, they're going to acknowledge the Lord, verse 6, but they're also going to bow down to Milcom, and then they're going to worship the stars, and then they're going to make sacrifices to Baal, all right? They're, just, they're, they're, they're playing the field. They're good, modern Melbourne, Melbournians, pluralists, right? I'll take a bit of Buddhism, I have a little bit of astrology, I'll take the, Christian, the fun Christian things, like Christmas, and then, I don't know, whatever, what else you got? Like, what, what have you got that's not actually going to cost me anything or change anything about my way of life, right? That's, that's kind of the, the, the thing that they're doing. They would fit in well in our time. And God says, because of that, you're done. We learned this a couple of weeks ago. God is a jealous God. What does that mean? It means he, he deeply protects what is his. He is zealous for those things which are his. In this case, his people. His people belong to him and they're chasing after all of these these other gods. He's married them and they're sleeping with prostitutes spiritually. So there's that. And then there's the the leaders, so-called leaders, civic leaders in verse 3 of chapter 3. The princes within her are roaring lions, her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. These are the leaders of Israel, of Judah, roaring lions, howling wolves, They take down the poor and the needy. They take what little the poor have and take it for themselves. This is the kind of leadership that Israel has. These these people who were brought up out of slavery, who, who know, who can remember, it's in their bones what it was to have nothing. And now all of a sudden they've got something and they've turned on those who have nothing. This is just repeated all through human history, by the way. It's in our blood. We become powerful, we oppress the poor. I mean, right down to the most socialist of ideologues, power to the people, put them in power, suddenly they're tyrannical, right? Dictators. It's 
crazy, but it's true. This is what we do when we get power. We oppress those who have none. It's not just the leaders, it's the ministers of the church. Verse 4 of chapter 3, her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. This is what the church leaders are like. They lead people away from God. Just, Just so you know, that's the opposite of their job description. Anyone who's a minister is meant to lead you, shepherd you towards the Lord. These people are, 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 are leading all of the people into the depths of hell and calling it ministry. It's because of sin. Specifically in the land of Judah, it's because of idolatry and bad leadership and terrible ministry. And this is the same old story. Like, I don't need to tell you this, right? Even if you've been here once in the past eight weeks, you'll know this. this is, we've had this on repeat. All of the prophets say the same thing over and over again. This is the problem with God's people. In fact, the southern kingdom of Judah knows this better than anyone because they saw the way that the northern kingdom of Israel was behaving, like doing all of these things, and they've seen the utter destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. God judged them because of these very things and destroyed them, had them exiled. And still the people of Judah go, oh, I'm I'm sure it'll be okay. Another thing that's repeated over and over again is this, this, this flagrant assumption that God won't do anything about it. That we can just keep on doing what we're doing and I'm sure God will be all right with it. Either because God isn't really here, he created the world but now he's somewhere else. Very popular idea in today's world, deism, right? Yeah, he started it but he's doing something else now. Or because God, you know, he's like that, he's like like a, a kind uncle, right? He's this gentle avuncular kind of permissive uncle who lets us get away with stuff. God's not going to judge us. Someone might say, well, do you see what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel? It's, it's not around anymore. Yeah, but they were bad people. On the scale of things between Hitler and Mother Teresa, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm more towards the, Teresa. And Zephaniah says, wrong. Verse 2 of chapter 3, he says of his own people, she is not obeyed, she has not accepted discipline, she has not trusted in the Lord, She has not drawn near to her God. Summary of these people. They're very much like kids, right? They're like little kids in that they keep doing the same thing over and again with dire consequences. Kids do that. But also they're like the kids who are like, which is I think all kids, they they have this propensity just to want to see whether you're genuine about whether you're going to do that thing. Right? The, The most common example that all of you know is the parent who says Jimmy get off the chandelier now 
He's not getting off the chandelier. This is amazing fun. I'm going to count to three. And then at that point, the parent makes the dire mistake, which you can only make once. It's a zero-sum game. The parent says, one, two, two and a half. And then you've lost. Forever you've lost. Because that's what the kid is hoping for. Just the, the tiniest bit of relent. The, the tiniest showing of weakness. Like you're not actually going to do what you said you're going to do. That's exactly what the people of Judah are doing now. They've heard Zephaniah. They've heard what God is going to do. And they're saying, yeah, but he might get to two and a half. And then we're good. Zephaniah's burden in the first part of this book is to say, there is no two and a half. If you think about it, that fall that I talked about before, the fall that happens in the third chapter of the book, the fall that happens when Adam and Eve turn away from the lordship of of God and seek their own lordship, that first sin was predicated on this myth that God won't really do, that God won't get past two and a half. Remember? Genesis 3, verse 4, 1 to 4. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you'll die. No, no. You will not die, the serpent said to the woman. And at that point, humans started doing what kids always do, which is test God to see whether he'll do what he said he's going to do. He won't really do that. That's like that's surely that's a bit of that's hyperbole. God, God is God of love. He'll he'll never judge anyone, right? Wrong. And so the picture that Zephaniah paints of the coming judgment of God on his people is bleak. I mean, you might never have got through the whole book because you get to kind of the end of chapter one, you're like, I can't bear this anymore. This is too dark. It is dark. Speaking to my boy Judy yesterday, he just turned five years old. Him and India and Renee had spent the night over at her mum's place in Diamond Creek. They came home. I said, how are you going, buddy? What's, you know, had a good day? And he said, today is the worst day ever. <laughs> and he's got the most... Perfect sad eyes. Today is the worst day ever. I said, why? What's going on? What happened? He said, I, I did not sleep all night. I didn't sleep all night. I'm very tired. And today is very hot. I like it when it's cold. 
and I've got a cut on my foot. And, oh, I just stepped on my Lego and it's all broken. It's the worst day ever. I was like, well, you know, yeah, that is pretty, that's pretty bad. But tonight is family movie night. And it was just, there was just a glimmer in his eyes of hope. Like all of these things are true, but something good is coming. This is a bleak picture that Zephaniah is painting. Is there any hope? There is. There's just a glimmer of hope. Just a glimmer. We go to point two, from wrath to repentance. Verse one to three of chapter two. He says, gather yourselves together, people of Judah. Gather together undesirable nation before the decree that takes effect and the day passes like chaff before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you seek the Lord all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands seek righteousness seek humility perhaps perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. There's this glimmer, this, this perhaps of hope that this can turn from, the, like remember, all the prophets talk about the same day. It's the day of the Lord. It's, it's this day that's coming where God's going to come and do justice on the earth. Everyone who is wayward and rebellious is going to be judged and destroyed. This day of the Lord is coming. It's going to be the worst day ever. But... There's this glimmer of hope that maybe for some, for some small remnant of God's people, they will be concealed on the worst day ever. They will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. And the pathway to that deliverance, the pathway to the glimmer of hope that he's holding out for us is the pathway of repentance. Gather yourselves together. Gather together. Right? Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth. Carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It's about repentance. It's about being humble enough to acknowledge, I have sinned. God is perfect. I am not. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about repentance. If this is the pathway to the only glimmer of hope that there is in a very bleak story that affects all of humankind because of what happened with Adam and Eve from the beginning, right? If all of, of, of us are in this thing together, then we need to know what's the pathway to the glimmer of hope that might deliver us from the worst day ever. Now, here's the thing. Everyone look right at me, just so we're really clear. If the first point didn't do anything for you, then switch off now. Because unless you understand and receive and believe in the reality of God's wrath, then you will never, ever exercise repentance. So if that first bit, if you were like, this, this is crap, man, I don't know why I'm here, then don't just... Play Angry Birds or something, all right? The rest of this won't make any sense and you won't, you, won't, you won't 
take any action as a result of it. So just put that out there. Repentance is about acknowledging that I have sinned and there are consequences for my sin. To put it in less religious terms, I have broken the law and there is a just God who is going to judge me for breaking the law. Because he's just, because he's God, because he's perfect, he has to judge me. He wouldn't be perfect if he just said, ah, two and a half, right? So, what's my response? My response is not to bury my indiscretion. It's not to make some fig leaves to cover my shame. My response is to repent. I can hear somebody, I'm sure this isn't a straw man, I'm sure that there's somebody somewhere saying, why are you spending 12 weeks focusing on these angry old guys? These Old Testament angry guys who are just yelling about God's wrath and all that stuff. Why are you focusing on that? Why not, why not go to the New Testament where everything's nice? Why are you talking about judgment when there's that new part, new is better than old, and the new part is about love, and love is better than wrath? Which is nonsense. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the gospel story is the same from Genesis to Revelation. And in fact, Jesus' own ministry was built on this very foundation. So, pick up Matthew, read through Matthew. First preaching you're going to come to is the preaching of John the Baptist. This is what John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3, preparing the way for Jesus' own ministry. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! Because the kingdom of God has come near. What's the big idea of your sermon, John? It's the thing I said first. Repent. That's what you need to know. That's the take-home message. That's the big idea. Repent. Yeah, but John was kind of like a prophet. He's, he's known as like a New Testament prophet in the sort of path the ongoing path of the Old Testament prophets. So, of course, he's going to say that. We need to get to Jesus, where he says about, you know, loving people and stroking lambs and all that stuff. What does Jesus say? First thing he says, very next chapter, his first sermon. And then on, Jesus began to preach, repent. It's a pattern here. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let me just remind you about the stakes here and just let Zephaniah do some of his poetry, which he's very good at. Verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1. The great day of the Lord is near. And see where John and Jesus got their language? Near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, 
Then the warrior's cry is bitter. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness. That is what God's judgment looks like. The path to safety is a path of repentance. Yes, the repentance that happens when you first acknowledge, maybe for the very first time, I am not God and I am not good. And then daily repentance thereafter. To be a Christian is to live in ongoing repentance. It should seem to us in the same category as eating and sleeping and showering, right? At least eating and sleeping, okay? Repentance. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to daily take up your cross and follow me. Unless you do that, you cannot be my disciple. So the pathway to security is the pathway of repentance. How do you do that? How does it work? What is, what, what is repentance? Here's what not to do. Okay, Don't do this. Don't do this. Feel bad, try harder, and repeat. Right? That is the Christian life for many of us. Live my life, which is to say sin continually. Occasionally, when I come to church and he yells at me, feel bad. I feel bad, what am I going to do? I can either just ignore that and keep doing what I'm doing and not be a Christian anymore, or feel bad and try harder and then go in the cycle that follows thereafter for 80 or 100 or 120 years. Don't do that. That is a path to despair and depression and ultimately destruction, my friends. Don't feel bad, try harder and repeat. Here's what we should do. Here's the, here's the Christian life. Fear God, turn from sin, run to Jesus. Fear God. That means you understand that the day of the Lord is coming. You understand that God is a righteous judge who will by no means overlook sin. Every careless word will be judged. You need to tell your kids about this, by the way, right? And, and don't shy away from it. They've heard fairy tales. They're way more intense than this stuff, all right? So here's the thing. Tell your kids the day of the Lord is coming you need to stand before God and you cannot hide behind mummy and daddy. On that day, you will be standing before God on your own. Right? And this is the same for every one of us. So, the right response to standing before God is fear. I got woken up last night by the thunder. Anyone else? The reason I got woken up is because there is something deep inside me honed over a long period of human development to fear anything that's that powerful. The storm, the biggest storm, is a little dove compared to God. 
And so we need to fear God in that way. It's a trembling. We just sang about it in that first song. I don't know if you picked up on that. Fear God, turn from sin, right? Acknowledge, yes. As much as I might be my best, my my own PR agent, and I can spin this or that and say, well, I was tired when I did that, and and I didn't have the best upbringing to do this, and right? As as much as you can do that, ultimately, if you're going to repent, you need to say, no, it's true. I'm a sinner. And I'm liable to God's judgment. How do you respond to that truth? You turn. That's literally what repentance means. I was going this way. I'm now going this way. I was feeding the pigs, boozing and sleeping with prostitutes, and the penny dropped that I needed to turn back to my father and throw myself on his mercy. The turning is repentance. Fear God, turn from sin, run to Jesus. This is the alternative to trying harder. We say to ourselves, well, I got myself into this, I'm going to get myself out of it. We're told from a young age that that's the most noble thing you can do, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves. Might be the most wrong statement ever made about God. If that's true, we're screwed, all right? God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who are dead in the grave. Run, run, run. To Jesus. He's your only hope. He's your only safe harbor on that worst day ever. And the sharp ones among you might say, Well, isn't Jesus God? Yes. Yes, you must fear God and run to God. Why? Because the the only one who can save you from God's judgment is God himself. The only one who can save you from God's judgment is God himself. The one who we are saved from is the one who saves us. Let me throw a couple of beautiful verses at you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. He's speaking of those Thessalonian Christians. He's speaking of how you repented, right? How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The one whom we are saved from is the one who saves us. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. Hear this, hear this, hear this pleading from Paul. 
Hear it from me. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made, God made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The church calls that the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin, even though he never committed one, and gives us his righteousness. And because we have his righteousness, there is no sin in us to be judged. Therefore, we are safe from the coming wrath of God against sin. Can you see that? That's good news. So hear this pleading. Be reconciled to God, not by trying harder, but by running to Jesus. Wrath, repentance, let me finish on restoration. I'll try and be real quick, all right? Here is, here is the big crescendo that Zephaniah is working towards, all right? This, this, this whole thing of recognizing the coming wrath of God, that is fearing God and, and then turning from sin, that is daily living in repentance, that is fueled by a future hope. It's that future hope that India was reminding me about concerning her pa. It's the future hope of recreation, Resurrection, restoration. I'm going to read a few verses, all right? So please, please stay with me. This is the end of the book of Zephaniah. Here's the hope. Chapter 3, and I'm going to read 11 to 20. He says, On that day you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me for then I will remove from among you your jubilant arrogant people and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain I will leave a meek and humble people among you and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord the remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies imagine that A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear him. Or, sorry, wrong. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Imagine God singing over you in delight. 
I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time I will deal with all you, all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who are disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at the time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. This is Zephaniah's hope. This is the hope of the people of God. From that time until today, this is our hope, final restoration God with us a warrior who saves the Lord singing over us in praise right this is our hope go right to the end of the Bible this is the same story Revelation chapter 21 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Next verse. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. And will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything. New. This is our great hope. Final restoration. And the call from God this morning, and you read it as you go on in Revelation, the call over and over again is, Come, 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 all you who are thirsty, come and drink from the fountain, the spring of everlasting life, without cost, right? Come, be reconciled to God. Find refuge in the only safe place there is. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to sing. And as we sing, I want you to come. I want you to come. This is more important than worrying about what people think about you. I want you to come. I want you to pray. Down here, right here is where we're going to be, to pray with you. We can lead you through prayers of repentance, if that's what you need to do. We can lead you to receive, maybe the first time, the grace of the Lord Jesus extended to every single person here right now. But come, come and pray with us.